Even if we have gender parity, frankly, even if we had female dominance in the national security community, it really won't shift things as much as if we were able to change the default frameworks and definitions and concepts and theories that we rely upon. It is the week of November 8th, and welcome to episode 105 of Fault Lines, the National Security Institute's podcast that explores the disagreements between the political left and right on issues of national security and foreign policy. I'm Lester Munson, NSI Senior Fellow. Today, we're joined by Gina Bennett, Senior Advisor at the National Counterterrorism Center, member of the CIA's Senior Analytics Service, and author of the book series, National Security Mob. She was also the first to warn of Osama bin Laden almost 30 years ago. Gina, thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. So in your National Security Mom book series, you connect your experiences with parenthood with how the U.S. should operate on the world stage. Can you talk to our listeners about what that means? Sure. Um, actually, this is something I could talk for days on. So uh, I think, you know, even though my books are called National Security Mom, and I went with that because I, I'm the mother in my family, um, I really do think, as you described it, it's it's about taking the lesson of parenting and applying that as a framework for how you think about international security, national security, international relationships. And I think it's um, it's helpful because we're all either a parent or we've had parents or we've had adjacent parents, you know, like maybe parent figures in our lives. And so some of those, the framework at least should be familiar. So you don't have to go to school to learn this. And really what has struck me over the years, um, a couple of things, most importantly, I think is in, ter- in terms of the sense of security uh, as a, as a parent, I don't know, you don't think of your family's security or your children's security in just physical terms. You don't even think of your own personal security in that way, really. But when it comes to securing your household, yes, there's a certain amount of it is, you know, locking your doors and keeping the cell phone safe and things like that. But a lot of it, especially if you have children, is about, you know, helping your children be resilient and withstand attacks on who they are and their personalities and their characteristics and just helping them value themselves themselves, you know, have that self-worth despite those sorts of, you know, rejection and, and setbacks in life. And it's really about securing the integrity of who they are. And I think, you know, in terms of when a family goes through some kind of tragedy, whether you, you lose a loved one or your house burns down or you go through divorce, you know, there's so many things. As long as you're still a family and you still love each other and you still care about each other, you're still secure. You're not always safe, but you're still secure. And I don't think there's any difference between that and a nation's security. Um, You know, at any given time, we are potentially unsafe. You know, a burglar could come in. You 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 could have all of these things. At any given time, a country could be threatened by something unpredictable and unexpected, like 9-11, for example. But we're still secure if we believe in the integrity of who we are as a nation. So for America, it's about believing in the Constitution and our democracy and the principles of our democracy, even when they're hard, you know, just like your family. Sometimes you have a sibling that's just really impossible at Thanksgiving dinner, for example. But you still believe and you still love everybody. And I think, you know, it's the same way in a nation is as partisan as we are, as polarized as we are right now, we're still unified in our dedication to the Constitution and the aspirations of it. 
And I think that's what makes us secure. If you define your security as a nation, as the absence of threats, then you are never secure. You're constantly insecure because you're always going to be threatened. Uh, So I think it's, you know, such an important and powerful lesson. And to me, it also is a really good reminder of the fact that just because you go from two to three to five to six to seven, you know, people in a family to then a neighborhood and a community and a town and a city and a state and a country in the world, it doesn't mean that the way people relate and act changes. It, we're still made up of people. So those dynamics and the lessons that you've learned as being a part of a family, whether it's a family that you were born into or a family you adopted later on or that adopted you later on, doesn't really matter. Those dynamics play out on the international stage as well. So as a, as a fellow parent, this <laughs> resonates with me enormously. And, and I wonder if we go off script a little bit and I want to ask you um, what you think about the role of a parent in the teaching of civics or of, mm-hmm. um, shall we say, patriotism or obligations to your your nation and whether is that something that a parent is responsible for and how does that translate into our national security community? Sure, no, that's a great question. I mean, you, you know, I I suppose every every parent's philosophy is different. I've always felt, you know, for my own, I have five children. And so for my own five kids, I've, ex, you know, I've accepted from the very beginning a couple of things. One, I'm in it for the long haul, right? And two, I have no control. <laughs> so I have a high tolerance for chaos and am extremely patient. And I, I apply those things also to national security, which I'm sure we can get to a, a little bit later as we talk through, you know, today's scenarios and situation in the world. But uh, so when it comes to, you know, civics, I think there's a, there's a partnership obviously between public education. If you choose, choose public education or certainly Uh, your children being taught in a school environment where they're going to be taught by people who are actually experts, hopefully, and understanding the constitution and the history of it and the purpose of it, as well as, you know, parents who are open to having the conversation and reinforcing it with their children. Um, I also feel like in the school setting, at least I know, you know, observing my own children, they've had the opportunity to learn civics in a classroom setting, like understanding what it is to be a contributor to the classroom community, um, understanding what happens when you are a de- you know detractor, um, or you when you don't obey the teacher, or when you are you are you know hurtful to a classmate. What happens? I mean, that's a that is all a civics lesson um, as well. And I think you know for teachers who are able to connect that material, it's really important. But for parents, it's equally important, too. And, you know, I, re- I grew up in a very dysfunctional household and with extreme political views in all directions, like directions people hadn't even made up yet. And so and on the one hand, what's good about that is I didn't really have, you know, one set of beliefs that was being forced upon me by my parents. Um, or that I would emulate because I didn't know which way to turn. And, you know, then having civics education in school where I learned one of the most important things as a citizen when I turned 18 was going to be that I get to exercise my choice, not my parents or not, you know, somebody else's, not my teachers. So I think you need to prepare your children for that too. Totally agree. 
Um, all right, let's talk about uh, a gender and uh, national security at the at the risk of uh, being not scientific and more uh, <laughs> anecdotal. I would say that in my uh, 32 years or so working in or near the national security community, it seems to be dominated by males. Talk about what it's like, if you don't mind, to be a woman in that environment. What are the hurdles? What are the opportunities? And then what do you say to young women and girls who are thinking about a career in national security? Sure. Um, yeah. And of course, I can, I, you know, I, I speak in generalizations, but those, of course, are never always true. And my, I, yeah, I've been in the community now for almost 34 years, um, most of it almost exclusively in counterterrorism in the intelligence community. So it's a very specific slice of national security that I've experienced. So it's really all I can speak to. So I don't want to overgeneralize the, my observations on the whole thing. But very clearly, not only is it still the domain of mainly men, um, and, and honestly, there's not a lot of diversity among the men either. Um, it's changing. I mean, that is changing as the country changes. So does the national security community in part, because how are we going to secure a country that we don't, you know, represent, you know, we need the diversity of ideas. And so I think there is sort of organic change happening there, but, um, you know, being a woman in the national security community, being a woman in counterterrorism, which tends to have a lot of hard edges to it. Um, certainly when I first started, it was mainly people who had left the military and per particularly special forces. And so it was very dominated by a sense of physical might and, you know, you know, force really. Um, it has been a, a tremendous challenge. But I think I have to tell you the hardest part for me at this point in my career is that no matter how diverse the workforce might get, even if we have gender parity, frankly, even if we had female dominance in the national security community, it won't, it really won't shift things as much as if we were able to change the default frameworks and definitions and concepts and theories that we rely upon, all of which were created by men over, frankly, millennia. In terms of seeing, again, going back to your definition of security, seeing security as something that is about physical integrity, it's about the tangible, it's a short-term fix, it is very different from, it's also quite impatient, it's very different from how women, and going back to the parenting, how your approach probably is, whether you're the dad or the mom, in a family of, again, trying to secure the character, the integrity the faith in each other, the the value, the shared values and characteristics of your family, you know, you're trying to secure all those very esoteric things. And, um, and that is really more important. You know, you want your child to be able to withstand rejection and a broken heart, not just broken bones. And I think um, so many, you, you know, read national security strategy after national security strategy after national security strategy, all the theories, Clausewitz, Weber, Everybody, you know, it's all all about power, you know, physical power and might, whether it's the, you know, your, your ability to defend yourself with that kind of power or whether it's your ability to project that kind of power to to make other people bow to your will. It's entirely in the physical domain. And it and even like the theory of la war as last resort, I think, reinforces this sense that physical power is definitive and it's not. I mean, you know, this as a parent too, right? 
if you believe in corporal punishment, it doesn't solve the problem. You, you know, you have to get to the root cause of why your child is behaving the way he or she does. Um, if you punch somebody in the face who disagrees with them, they're not more inclined to agree with you because of that. In fact, they're less inclined and they're going to be more resistant. And so I think, you know, from my perspective, women, especially as, um, you know, in our DNA as gatherers over so many thousands of years, where we have, it has been on us to collect and gather resources. It's been on us to ensure the young are educated and brought along in a cult, you know, into the culture and taught. It has been on the, on us to think in long term. Um, I think that what we bring to national security theory to the concepts and definitions is is entirely surrounding um, influence as the most definitive and enduring form of power. Because you, again, as a parent, you know, you have a tiny window to influence your children and you hope that during that period of time, you create this shared set of values. And so that when they go off without you or whether it's because you're gone or they just go, uh, that they still carry that shared set of values on with them. And that's what you do also, I think, in the world, if you really want to make yourself secure as a nation, you want to help create those shared sets of values in the world through influence, not through fear and power of you know, physical force, but through influence, because that's the only thing that lasts. So what's your advice to young women, and for that matter, young men, who are thinking about entering the national security community uh, as, as a career, given given your kind of outside the box view of, and I mean that in a good way, outside the box view of some of these paradigms we kind of adopt unconsciously. Yeah. You know, I've spent obviously for the past few years as I've been um, supporting girl security, um, which, you know, creates, it's a nonprofit organization creating programming to provide opportunities to young girls, particularly in high school and even elementary school so that they can see careers in national security as an option for them, because it's so often the little bit you get in school, you think in terms of national defense is military, national security is military, or it's intelligence, and it just seems inaccessible to a lot of girls. So, you know, to answer the question first as to what I would say to them, because I think what I say to young men is a little bit different. Uh, For the women and the girls who are interested, or even who aren't, And I'm just trying to, you know, introduce the concept to them. It's understanding that you have innate skills that can be applied to this. This isn't about whether or not you can learn how to shoot a weapon or or launch a rocket. That's that that's all. There's there's a place for that, of course. But it's about the critical thinking skills. It's about how you identify problems, how you communicate, how you solve them. And girls do that just like boys. They do them, you know, lots of times the same, lots of times differently. It really doesn't matter. The point is, that's what national security is about. It's about identifying problems, identifying opportunities, communicating and collaborating with the right set of very diverse people so that you can, you know, really fully and, you know, tackle the problem and coming up with the solutions and, and working through them and, and building the coalitions and the expertise to, to solve these problems. That is not a physical set of traits or something that is hardwired just for boys to be able to do. 
And then you add to it again, I think uh, just that tendency on the part of women to be a little bit more longer term in their focus, um, more understanding of the nuance of influence and more importantly, the vulnerability of a solution that lacks influence as a major building block of it. Um, and therefore is like just about fear or power projection. I, so with all of that, I do think girls and women bring something very valuable that has been missing to the national security equation. But for boys and young men, um, especially, so I have millennials and Gen Z. Uh, I have two millennial boys and one Gen Z boy. And boy, they're just different, you know, um, whether it's the digital age or the way they've grown up or, you know, how they've been taught in school. I don't know what it is, but they're already so much more embracing of um, challenge to their thinking and uh, willingness to collaborate with others or you know, if you go back to the day, you probably experienced this with your own kids where wherever all the parents were concerned because we were teaching our kids that everybody is special. You know, everybody gets a, a trophy and a ribbon. But when I started teaching millennials, I realized the flip side of growing up thinking everybody is special is that you actually believe everybody is special, which means you actually need everybody. You know, like everybody has something special and unique to bring to a challenge or a problem. And so I just find them more innately collaborative than my generation was. We were much more competitive. And I think seeing men become more collaborative and less competitive is what's going to help us in our national security in the long run from preventing ourselves from impulsively trying to solve problems that are really conditions and not solvable. Um, it's that, you know, a little bit of that impulsivity, I think, in recognizing, oh, there are other people who might have an idea about what to do with this particular challenge that we're facing. And so I, I have a lot of hope for men bringing a different set of, the, you know, the young men that at least the, the ones that I have the opportunity to teach and, you know, work with bringing a different mindset to the solving of national security problems. Yeah, I have to say, um, I'm not sure if my my kids are uh, 19 and 21. I don't know if they're Gen Z or or millennial. I I don't know where the dividing line is, but I will say their generation and their friends and the kids they went to school with seem so much more ahead of our generation on embracing diversity, on seeing the value of others from where they're coming from, and just having a much kind of broader understanding of uh, what it means to contribute to society and their obligations and their uh, the things that they try to get out of out of the community are I think different than what our generation did and and the way we thought and you know by the way kudos to us for raising them that way. <laughs> <laughs> well, I always tell my children that they're going to be in therapy the rest of their lives because of me, but it'll be for different reasons. So. <laughs> All right, let's uh, let's flex a little bit and talk about uh, 1993 when you uh, authored a report in the IC regarding Osama bin Laden and identifying him as a threat. Tell us what you can on this, you know, non-classified podcast about what that process was like and how that was received, because it seems very, very, very much of an early warning about a serious problem we were facing. Um, yeah, sure. And I mean, in fact, that is the first one that was declassified. 
Um, it's not as if we weren't, um, you know, seeing some of the signs a little bit earlier, but um, that was the first thing out the door. Uh, I'd actually written it a little bit earlier than that, but then I had a, my first son early. <laughs> he came um, about a month early. So that was a little bit of a break for me. Really, um, you know, it, it, what I'm so appreciative now in hindsight is, um, you know, kind of going back to how we were trained in our generation. When I first came into the world of counterterrorism and intelligence, you know, all my mentors uh, were cold warriors, right? They had been countering terrorism and looking at terrorism in the midst of the Cold War. So it was really all about East-West. It was Marxism and, you know, capitalism and communism and democracy and to some degree, separatist movements that were still left over from the colonial period. So uh, that's what I, I walked into. And luckily, I didn't know anything because I was so young and, and brand new. So I was learning this from them and understanding terrorism as an outgrowth of political competition. But also because I was not set yet in my thinking and still in the absorb mode, when I started noticing um these people leaving Afghanistan, even as early as, you know, the beginning of 1990, after the Soviet troops pulled out in 89, there were just so these patterns emerging um, at the really early on of these individuals leaving, and not just going back and going back to whatever they were doing before, but actually going back and joining local extremist groups in various different countries that already existed, that were already there, trying to topple their own government for not being Islamic enough. But um, they would go back and join them. And they just had a different set of skills, as well as this cachet having you know come from the Afghan uh, war. So it was just starting to notice this trickle. And eventually that trickle turned into those individuals increasingly being the ones who were caught or suspected of violent attacks in those countries. You know, this is North Africa, all the way to the Philippines, frankly, because there were a lot of of over 50 countries um, were represented in the Afghan war in terms of the volunteers that went there. Today, we call them, I guess, foreign fighters. Um, But you start to see that's that's an anomaly statistically. Uh, I know we're talking about low numbers to begin with, but it just, you know, when you continue to see those individuals with that experience being the ones who are engaged in the most violent acts across multiple countries, that's that's going to stick out at you, you know, that anomaly. And so that anomaly just kept on building to a point where it was impossible to ignore it as a trend. Um, now, there were only a handful of us across the intelligence community at the time that were noticing this. We're in a position to be able to notice it because, frankly, we were structured still very much in a Cold War. You know, it's still the post-Cold War. And so we were mainly structured you know, region by region, country by country across the intelligence community. So it was hard for people to pick up these trends that not only went across countries, but they went across major regions, you know, from East Asia all the way to the United States. So, you know, it took some time for us to find each other in the intelligence community and realizing that we weren't the only ones to see this anomaly and the anomaly then become a trend. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, just making sure that you have individuals who are allowed to think and look outside of whatever 
the line and block chart is on any given day. Obviously, initially, back in the early 90s, um, again, we had just survived the Cold War. We had survived the threat of mutually assured destruction, something we were all, you know, had grown up in, in the fear of. And it was a little bit hard for people. It was hard. Let's be honest. It was hard for people to believe that a non-state group of people who, you know, again, didn't have state sponsorship, were not even the same nationality, um, would truly pose a cohesive, uh, substantial terrorist threat to the United States, maybe to Saudi Arabia, because of course, bin Laden was a Saudi, you know, dissident, maybe to some other places, but not the United States. It just was hard to believe. And, you know, I look back, even at the time, I understand why it was hard to believe. So uh, it just took, it took really building, um, the coalitions across the intelligence community of people who were seeing the same kind of activity, um, the enhancement of violence and organizational cohesion in extremist groups across the world for us to bind together and really make it so that you couldn't ignore what we were seeing. I don't know if that answers your, all of your question there, but. Well, well how was, talk to us about how the report was received after, oh, you, after you yeah. finalized it and what, and were you, was it warmly embraced and were actions taken immediately or was there some skepticism? Oh, there was definitely skepticism. There were quite a few people who thought we were making, you know, a mountain out of a molehill of bin Laden in particular. Um, I mean, it was discouraging, but. I also didn't take it too personally. Uh, you know, from my perspective, it was it was a challenge to figure out how to explain it better. Um, I think in the policy community, so in the intelligence community, right? So we're already trained to be thinking ahead of where people are. There's There became a little bit more acceptance of it by 1995. Um, there were some attacks inside Saudi Arabia that were alleged to have been inspired by Osama bin Laden. And so it started to become a little bit more acceptable in the, you know, among the analytic community and operating community in the intelligence area. I think policymakers had a much harder time with it, you know, honestly, really until maybe the coal bombing in 2000. I mean, the Africa embassy bombings in 1998 um, were obviously significant attacks, but it's not as if we hadn't had embassies attacked in the past. And I don't, I think people just didn't see a disconnect in the policy community. I'm not sure people saw a tremendous disconnect, but going after a U.S. warship and nearly sinking it was a bit of an eye opener. Um, and then obviously 9-11 itself. But yeah, no, I mean, it's, it's just, it's hard to convince people uh, that tomorrow is going to be different from today. And um, I think it's a good reminder for, you know, for people today to recognize that there's there's a group of analysts or experts out there who are saying, hey, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. And we're all like, mm, it's not, you know, it's just the way things go. Um, some people see trends that others don't, and then they have a very different, difficult time providing a persuasive you know, argument as to why things are going to unfold the way they do. Do you do you see anything in in today's set of challenges for the United States that we might be overlooking because we we come into uh, our view of the world uh, through pattern recognition that's built up over decades, and you know we're looking for certain things, and then we kind of rank order them. Is there is there something that's just getting by us today that's similar to perhaps what you identified? 28 years ago? 
Oh, well, I know there are much smarter analysts than me who are, who could probably give you a laundry list of things, especially in the world of disruptive technologies and, you know, fields of where we have these merging disciplines like, you know, biomedicine and microtechnology and, you know, technological advances and that I'm sure so many things um, that uh, might have been science fiction 10 years ago or actual reality today and, and so forth. But I think from my perspective, I still, you know, to me, I still go back to some of the big strategic things like we were talking about in the very beginning. Um, I never thought terrorism was an existential threat to the United States. Um, I've never, I, I just refuse to believe that it ever will be. In fact, I always thought even if we had a nuclear Holocaust and the Soviet Union did destroy the vast majority of cities in the United States, I'm not convinced that the rest of the American, the Americans that were left behind were going to say, okay, we'll be communists. I mean, it, it's just ridiculous, right? So we didn't turn into a caliphate because bin Laden bombed, you know, the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and um, the, you know, whatever the other airplane was going to attack. So I, um, I think we still miss that the, our key strength is us, always has been, always will be, but it can always be our key weakness too. And that concerns me more than anything else is that we have stopped believing in our system of government. We've stopped believing in each other and trusting each other in the institutions, as well as the process that we don't see gridlock as a positive. Gridlock is a positive. It means there's no tyranny of the majority or tyranny of the minority for that matter. You know, it's a positive. Um, But, you know, we don't see it that way. And I, so I think that we're missing that. And the big picture for me is, you know, when the Cold War ended and the Soviet Union fell and democracy was breaking out all over the world, we stopped competing for the hearts and minds of the world. We stopped promoting and advocating and demonstrating why democracy or any kind of government that is responsive to the needs and wants of its entire population is good and is the best form of governance. We stopped competing in that space. And we're now almost 40 years behind in this competition. And I I think that's, you know, that's where we need to go back to because all of that technological advancement, all of the weapon systems, all of that stuff is still only temporary physical power projection. Um, and I don't care if you mutate people. <laughs> I, I think that people will resist when they are forced to do or believe or be something that they're not. And that's the greatness of democracy and the, 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 the concept of our governance is that it's, it's authentic and, you know, you get to decide for yourself. And so I think we're still missing that and we're missing out on what the greatest power that we have really is, which is that shining city on the hill. So Gina, I like, I, I got to tell you, like, I feel like we're, we're uh, you know, uh, like spirit siblings or something. <laughs> uh, like I, I really, um, you're, you're really striking a chord with me. And, and what I'm hearing you say is that it's not, the thing that we need to worry about is not so much whether another country is running a disinformation campaign against us or trying to subvert 
this, that, or the other thing. It's the, it's the result that they're looking for, which is that one group of Americans doesn't trust another group of Americans more so than they don't trust outsiders. That this like divisions, these divisions that we're seeing kind of emerging in our own society, or at least what it looks like are emerging, is really the thing that maybe we should be concerned about. We should be a little more mindful about resisting, not so much that we shouldn't be talking to folks who are outside our country. Of course, we should be talking to them, but we should remember where we come from and the things that do bind us together as a people. And that and that, that effort is so much more important than the size of the intelligence budget or the defense budget or even you know the development budget or anything like that. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I liken it to my, my son and I wrote an article um, earlier this year called Conversations Around the Dinner Table. And it really... It gets at this idea of going back to the family unit, right? Most families have at least one member in the family who thinks very differently from everybody else on the political spectrum anyway, whether it's politics, religion, what you know whatever the issue is. Um, imagine your Thanksgiving table, right? And everybody's sitting there on eggshells hoping that the issue of gun rights or access to abortion or the ERA or immigration, all these things don't come up because they don't want them to come up. Um, But when they do, and inevitably they find their way, especially if you have too much wine at your table. (laughs) Um, But when they do, what's the one thing that a family tries to do still at the end of it, in addition to having dessert, (laughs) You, you're still trying to find a way to love and respect each other, right? Like to recognize that even though this sibling thinks so very different from me, I still love this person. I still wish this person to have joy in their life. Um, I still want to be connected in some way. I will not be persuaded and that's fine. And that sibling respects that, right? That's how we have to be too, as, as a, as a nation, um, across our political divide, across our gender divide, across our our races, you know, the various race divides, across the economic divide, every all of it is trying to understand that just because you think that way and believe it that way, and I believe it this way, doesn't mean that we're either of us is a bad person because of it. <laughs> you know, we're all good people. We're we all have the same rights. So it's it's not turning people into monsters um, or dehumanizing them because they believe and think differently from you. I feel, Gina, like we have to make this our Thanksgiving episode uh, yeah. because this was this is the best uh, national security discussion about the Thanksgiving <laughs> table that I've ever come across. <laughs> I, you know, I, I teach ethics in intelligence and you know, one of the things um, when we get to like looking at the Constitution, you know, I teach my students, obviously, you could look at the Constitution and say, it's a body of law, it is a body of law. And so therefore, it's, you know, rules based, but I like to look at the preamble as the mission statement for the United States, as so many other people do. And to me, the preamble is a set of aspirations for all time. And, you know, when I approach intelligence support to national security as we we what we want to do is make sure yes we would love to pick the best option but usually we have bad options to pick from so we really want to make sure that we are doing no harm to that set of aspirations when we make our choices and decisions in national security and international security um so 
But to get to that place, I think uh, it really helps for people to look at the divisions that we have, you know, where we come to these very different, no, I think we should do it this way. No, we shouldn't leave Afghanistan. Yes, we should leave Afghanistan. All of these kinds of decisions, whether they're, you know, national, international affairs or domestic affairs, they are all divisions created in the Constitution, not the political parties. We could not we could have no political parties in this country and we would still have these divisions because that constitution wants us to have it all. It wants us to have community, you know, community safety and security and individual privacy and security. It wants us to have, you know, everything that we need now as well as everything we need in the future. It you know, it it wants us to have justice. It wants us to have mercy. It wants us to have truth. It wants us to have loyalty. It wants all of the paradigm tensions and ethics. And it's, you know, it really comes down to when you prioritize this, this, and this, or this, this, and this, you know, your decision about whether or not everyone should wear a mask or everyone should get vaccinated really comes down to those short-term, long-term individual community. Like what do you, it has nothing to do really with party. And you know, it's a, it's a an enigmatic thing that the Constitution is both this fabulous document and set of aspirations and also the root of all of our division. <laughs> but it is. It just is. Which is why the one thing it demands more than anything else is mutual respect and patience. Gina, amen. That's a wrap. As always, Fault Lines is produced by the National Security Institute. Find out more about the Institute and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you have any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, send us an email at nsi at gmu.edu or tweet us at masonnatsec. If you like what we are doing here, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so that more people can find our show. We'd like to thank Claude Jennings for editing, Jacob Sarnecki for research assistance, and Maeve Cronin for production assistance. Join us next week for another provocative conversation and further analysis of national security's fault lines.